loud. <laughs> So tonight I wanted to talk about something that we do a lot. I wanted to talk about the thinking mind and thoughts, uh, how to have a wise relationship that is skillful. Now we think a lot, at least that's my experience, and in talking to many of you, I think you do too. <laughs> you know, this mind, it's something it does. And right there is something to know, to remember. It's something the mind does. So because thoughts in our lives have at times been a wonderful thing. You know, we go to school, we get trained in how to use thought, to be creative with thought. Uh, how to problem-solve through thinking. And at times, it's very helpful. But we also find a lot in our lives that we are bound up within the story of our life. That these thoughts become obsessive, that we can't control them, they're completely out of control. I mean, we see this sitting here. No, can you control your thoughts? I suspect not many of you would raise your hand. <laughs> you know, we, and we sitting here, we see all kinds of thoughts coming up. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and they can be so painful when we identify with them. And so, you know, how do we relate to this in practice? This thing that the mind does. It can take a while. You know, we first come to practice, and maybe we weren't aware of how much we actually thought. You know, because we've used it a lot in our lives. But then you sat down, and you tried to be with the breath. And what happened? You started thinking about being with the breath. You thought about the meditation instructions. Is it the right way to do it? I don't know. I don't think I'm doing it right. Well, I could do it right if the person beside me wasn't breathing so loud. Um, you know, and there's just this whole story that we start to tell ourselves. And then the story of the attempt to be with the breath. Know that, oh, I'm no good at this. I can't do it right. It must be because when I was little I didn't get the love that I needed. You know, there just becomes a whole creation around it. And then we get a little bit closer to the breath. And then it's the story about the breath. Oh, well, look at this. Oh, this is a good breath. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's full. It's rich. Oh, I love it. You know, this must be it. And, you know, it's still the story. It's the story, the story, the story. Oh, I remember sitting for six months. And, you know, after three months, it was like, oh, my God, the stories I tell myself. 
You know, it was just one thing after another. Whatever happened, there was a story about it. You know, it could create just this little world. And that's what happens. You know, it becomes a little universe in itself. And, you know, sitting here, we see that many of these thoughts really have nothing to do with anything that we can relate to. You know, that, they, that they've come uninvited. They come sometimes saying the strangest things. You know, I've heard some of you say, I just can't believe where this came from. You know, and sitting in the silence, it all comes up. Um, and yet, you know, a really scary thing for me when I started to see something of just how much the mind thinks was to realize that in my life there was a time when a thought arose and just because it arose there was the tendency to think it was the truth. And, you know, when we see how indiscriminate the mind is, you know, one teacher once said, the mind has no shame. No, it will think anything. Wow, it becomes scary to live as if all those thoughts are true. (laughs) And so I think it's worthwhile to learn how to relate to these thoughts. To learn to see them as they are. To know them for what they are. The, the, um, there was an Indian master of Buddhist teachings named Nagarjuna, and he once said, there is no samsara apart from your own thoughts. You know, these thoughts, they create worlds. They create suffering when we don't relate wisely. You know, we can hear a statement like that and think, well, better get rid of the thoughts. But that's not the answer either because it's a function of mind. And, you know, it's how can we be with them? How can we know them for what they are? How can we not be tossed around by these thoughts, but have a wise relationship? And this is something our practice can do. It can help us to step out of the story of our lives. And that was what I saw when I began practice, that you know, earlier in my life, I lived in a dream. You know, it was always something of this story. You know, the dream could be fantasizing about life, the way I thought things were, wanted them to be, or just this way of habitually telling ourselves a story about life that is different than really standing in the present moment where there may be a thought, but that's not all there is. There may be a feeling. We're really standing in the stream of life, touching it, but not bound by it. And this is where the thought You know, when we get caught in thought, identified with thought, it weaves this web, a web of delusion. And, you know, pretty soon we don't know what to make of life. We're so caught in the web. The first thing that's of great help is something I've already mentioned, and that is just to know 
that thinking is a natural process, not to be gotten rid of. It is so common that as we come to meditation practice, we have the idea to get rid of our thoughts. We want the calm mind, the peaceful mind, and that mind doesn't think. There is types of practice where one may be working with really strengthening the factor of concentration. And it can happen through deep concentration that there is no thought because the mind is absorbed into the object of concentration. But that's really temporary. And that's actually only one aspect of what the mind can do. If we really want to understand the mind, we have to understand the mind in its fullness. And thinking is one of the things it does. So when we come to vipassana or insight meditation, it's really important to remember that we are not here to get rid of our thoughts. We are here to know when thinking is occurring. There's a huge difference between being lost in thought and knowing that thinking is occurring. And we've spent probably a lot of our lives lost in thought, and so can be a little bit fearful that just to know when thinking is occurring is enough. But it's very different. Explore it in your own experience. If you've been lost in thought, you're probably not going to be able to map that. But when you become aware, just notice what you remember that experience to be like. And then just have the awareness of thinking. You know, you might, you could even do it, we could do it right now. Just sit. For a moment, just sit and just let everything be. If thoughts are there, it's okay. If no thoughts there, it's okay. Just sitting. Awareness of whatever is most predominant in your experience. Letting there be a sense of relaxation and ease. And then consciously think. It doesn't matter what you think about. It doesn't need to make sense. Just let thoughts be in the mind. And if they stop, keep generating them. But be aware of the thoughts. It can be about anything. thinking, and awareness of thought. Keep generating, 
awareness of thinking. I find it an interesting process. There was, it may have felt like a bit of a struggle to keep thoughts going. There may have been effort or energy needed there. But it's not so difficult to know when thinking is occurring. And it's very different. Sayadaw Utejaniya, the teacher that I just practiced with in Burma, he says of, uh, he's speaking about both thinking and hearing. He says, when the mind is thinking or wandering, when a sound keeps catching your attention, just be aware of it. Thinking is a natural activity of the mind. It is natural that if you have good hearing, you will hear sounds. You are doing well if you know that you are aware that the mind is thinking or hearing. But if you feel disturbed by thoughts or sounds, or if you have a reaction or judgment to them, there is a problem with your attitude. The wandering mind and the sounds are not the problem. Your attitude that they should not be around is the problem. So so understand that you have just become aware of some functions of the mind. These two are just objects of your attention. So when we can be aware of a thought, it's just another object of meditation. It's just another appearance in the mind. Mostly when our mind wanders, and we notice this, we don't think, oh, great, awareness is here. We get caught in the judgment. I've been thinking so long. I've been lost so long. Where's my mindfulness? But if we can just recognize that in one moment there was wandering mind, in another moment there's awareness. Paying attention as we practice to how we relate to these thoughts. Is there aversion? Is there this sense of wanting to get rid of? And uh, it is really helpful to do, as James, I think, mentioned the other night in his talk, if we're noting, to pay attention to the tone of the noting. Because often, you know, we can see that in how we might note thinking, there's an aversive edge to it. This tendency to want to push it away. That there is the not wanting. Sometimes with the thinking mind, we might like it. There there might be a lot of pleasure, a thought that holds uh, a lot of enchantment. Uh, It could be that the mind is becoming very creative. You know, it's common that as we practice in the silence, 
we experience what's called Vipassana brilliance. And you know, a lot of creative thoughts happen sitting here. And there can at times be total enchantment with this. In these times, I think it's really helpful to remember that when we sit here on retreat, we're practicing to really understand the mind. You know, it's a really distinctive form of practice that we're doing. And in order to understand the mind, we drop into the process level. And so if each time we have you know, creative thoughts, brilliant thoughts, we just follow those thoughts, we are not going to be able to see that process because we're caught up in the content, in what's unfolding. You know, it's very much like um, desire. And if we're always just going after desire, and the, uh, focused on the object of our desire, then we will not see the nature of desire itself. We will not understand in our minds what it feels like, where it comes from. That we, we live in that place of enchantment. And it isn't that creativity is bad, is wrong. There, you know, and there can be great brilliance that comes as we sit out of the spaciousness of mind. But what we're really learning to do is to drop in, to understand thought as thought, to be able to see it for what it is, to be able to understand how it impacts things, to be able to see whether it's skillful or unskillful. Uh, to know it in its nature, to know it as it is. And so we have to be careful that to watch where we get enchanted, where we're captivated by what's arising. As we pay attention, we will at times see thoughts, you know, just as they're arising. And it can be so much easier to connect and know that thought before it moves into an idea, a concept that we solidify around, that we start to really create a sense of I, me, or mine. It's interesting in our experience to see how there can be just, you know, a subtle thought of aversion. And if we don't pay attention, 
it can really very quickly move into rage. It, you know, there's not many mind moments between you know, that subtle thought of aversion in a rage that just wants to lash out. So we really see how important it is to learn to notice thoughts, to be aware of them. Because these thoughts color our vision. When a thought of anger arises, to see, can we just let go, let be? Not to pick up the ball of Mara, not to get entrenched in the anger, not to become involved in the anger, but just to know it. Now, sometimes there may be an emotion that's present that where we feel the anger, and sometimes, you know, there's thoughts. You know, we're we, we're just hooked into some story, and that story is just creating an immense amount of anger. But when we see this, can we simply put it down? There, um, a few years ago, was a teacher teaching here at, at the Forest Refuge. Her name was Sarah During. I don't know if, how many of you may have met her. She's a very wise woman, uh, elderly woman. And she lives with the greatest of integrity. And she would sit up here and say, with the greatest of integrity, just cut the thought. And you know, there is some times where, you know, it's not from the place of aversion that one's cutting it, but just from the place of knowing that to feed this thought is not skillful, it's not helpful. And, you know, it's like Manjushri's sword of wisdom. We don't need to go there. We don't need to entertain this. As we pay attention to thoughts, we will see that often there are emotions that are connected. And you know, if you have a thought that keeps reoccurring, that you find that no matter how much you pay attention to it, it arises again, then it's very likely there's an underlying emotion that's connected. And this is from Sayada Utejani again. It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It is more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful or unskillful, appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. This is why is it essential to learn to watch thinking without getting involved. When a thought keeps growing, no matter how much effort you put into trying to simply observe it, you are probably somewhat involved in the thought. When this happens, when thinking becomes so incessant that you can no longer observe it, stop looking at the thoughts and try to watch 
the underlying feelings of bodily sensations instead. So for really obsessing over some thought, just turning the attention from the thought itself into what's underlying it, what's fueling it, what's the pull, the hook. Oftentimes, the stories that we tell ourselves keep us on the surface. There may be something that we're afraid to face, afraid to touch into. And so we keep on this level of thinking, thinking. And you know, it's not consciously that we're doing it. But, but when we stop, pause, allowing what's underneath it to be known, to be seen, to be touched, you know, our practice really helps us to touch into the dark corners of our minds, the places we're scared to go. And so noticing if there's something underneath it and seeing if you can just allow that to be. Seeing the play between thought and emotion, how thoughts can fuel the emotion. Being with the totality of the experience We will also notice, as we pay attention to our thoughts, how these thoughts help to create this sense of I, me, and mine. Now, just how when there's a story of anxiety, it becomes my anxiety. When there's a story of fear, it becomes my fear. When there's a story about sadness, my sadness, we begin to see how many of these thoughts, it's I that sits at the center of it all. We also begin to see how painful that is. But it's very different when we just see it's just a thought. Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche says, This I is just a thought. A thought does not intrinsically possess solidity, a form, shape, or color. It is just like the wind in an empty space. The thoughts of I, just like a wind in the empty space. Thoughts not only color the mind, no create views, opinions, beliefs, but they also have a great power. No thoughts, what we think about, can turn into actions, can turn into speech. And it's so easy to do harm very quickly. It's so easy to carelessly speak a thought and hurt someone. 
to have an impulsive thought and do something, an action that's harmful to another. And thoughts, as we see, arise very quickly. But as we pay attention to them, we begin to see the thoughts that are skillful, helpful. The thoughts that, if we act upon, will cause more pain. This work that we do around being mindful of thinking, it's so valuable. How else will we be able to discern what is wholesome, what is helpful, if we don't pay attention? If we aren't able to be aware of our thoughts, but think we just have to get rid of them? You know, we need to be able to discern And it's through this awareness, through being present. And in the silence, the thoughts are easier to see. In in our daily lives, there's so much going on that we don't often see the thoughts to the same degree. So that as we practice here, not trying to get rid of, but working with being aware of, it will help us in our daily life. There was a period in my own practice where I was sitting and suddenly there was just this stream of very mundane thoughts. No, not thoughts that had any real interesting things to say, you know, just like a chatter in the mind. But there was awareness of it, and it was just you know mundane thought after mundane thought after mundane thought. And so I reported it to my teacher. And he said, if you can be mindful of them, it will help you to clarify mundane situations. For example, how to live in harmony with people, what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. Each day we are faced with things the mind talks about. If we are mindful during this process, if we are aware of thought, the underlying emotions, able to see thought as just thought, we're aware of a level of concept, and we know it for that, for it being concept. And we can also be aware of reality itself. Thought lies within reality. It's not separate. No, it, within thought, we can come to know the nature of thought. We can use it as a function in the mind that is at times helpful and skillful, and at the same time, not be bound by it. So in working with thought to notice our attitude, whether there's aversion, whether there's greed, wanting. To be 
aware of what happens as we become present with the thought? Does it continue? Does it disappear? I mean, these are two very different options. One's not better than the other. It's simply different ways experience unfolds. I know for the longest time in my practice, I really believed that, yeah, sometimes they don't disappear, but it's really better when you notice it, it disappears. But there's a way of being with thought where, you know, it's like um, an old man who's sitting in a park on a park bench, and there's these children playing in the field. And as he's sitting there, he's simply observing these children playing. He's not involved with them, just watching. And sometimes this is our experience. Sometimes it will be that as we become aware of thinking, the thought disappears. So it's fine too. This happens also. If the thought continues, notice this. If it becomes obsessive, notice if there's an underlying mind state that's feeding the thought. It's all okay. Nothing to get rid of. Just to be with this process. Despite our best efforts, sometimes we will get deeply entrenched with thoughts. You know, the Buddha recognized this. And so he once spoke about, um, he gave guidelines for working with distracting thoughts, or thoughts where the entanglement is so strong. So first we really try to work with the thinking mind, just to know it, to be with it. But if we're continually getting hooked, lost in it, he talked about first replacing an unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought. So, say we have a lot of thoughts where there's anger. Replacing this with loving kindness. You know, the anger is an unwholesome thought. The loving kindness is a wholesome thought. It's turning to the, the mind towards that which is wholesome. You know, we can have this habit of just getting entrenched in the unwholesome. And sometimes we think that, you know, for, we have the idea that we should be able to be mindful of it, but the capacity in that moment might not be that strong. And so it can be more skillful to turn the mind where it's wholesome. So if it's anger, you know, we turn towards loving kindness. And we'll just have to see in that moment, is the loving kindness directed to the person whom we're angry with? Or is it directed towards ourselves, whom is suffering in that moment? We, this way of replacing unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts is also how we're working when we work with antidotes to the hindrances. You know, sometimes if greed is really strong in the mind, it can be helpful to reflect on impermanence. You know, how what we're really lusting after is really fleeting. It's not going to bring lasting happiness. 
And so, you know, sometimes reflections like that will be helpful. The Buddha likened this to a carpenter who might knock out, remove, and extract one coarse peg by means of a fine one. So we're working with replacing a thought that is quite coarse by one that's much finer, not creating so many ripples. The next form of working with distracting thoughts that he spoke about is to reflect upon the faults of the disturbing thought. So, again, using anger as an example, uh, that if anger is in the mind, we reflect on the faults of this disturbing thought. You know, we can see in that moment what, how anger is, what, what the harm is, you know, how there's a poison in the mind right there, how if we act out on it, it's going to create pain, how disturbed the mind is in the face of this anger. There's a, quite a graphic description that the Buddha used in likening this process. He likened it, this process to a person who is very fond of ornaments, and they have this ornament around their neck, and then they become horrified, humiliated, and disgusted to discover they had the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being hung around their neck. And, you know, this is like you know, being enchanted with something, and then you really look at it and you see what it is. You know, it becomes very inspiring to let it go. (laughs) The next form that the Buddha used of working with distracting thoughts is to forget them. No, just let them go. I've had some thoughts where I feel like it's picking at a scab. You know, you just... (laughs) It's, you know, and what he's saying is just forget it. Turn the attention somewhere else. It's not from aversion. It comes from wisdom. You know, it's like, my mother telling me over and over again, don't scratch your mosquito bites. <laughs> and I couldn't help it, you know, it's just scratching, scratching, scratching. Um, but one day, and I see, oh, it hurts more. Oh, the itching intensifies. You know, but if we just leave it, just let it go. I have a friend who was sitting with uh, Sayada Upandita, and she had this place that she loved to walk. And then somebody came along and walked in that area, and that person really pissed her off. Every time they came, she got caught in anger. And so one day she reported to Sayada Upandita that this was occurring. And, you know, he's a tough taskmaster. And, you know, you always feel like whatever's happening, however strong the pain is, he's just going to tell you to be with it. You know, look in, see, be with it. And so she's telling the story of how this anger keeps arising. And he just looked at her and said, go walk somewhere else. (laughs) 
sometimes that's skillful. <laughs> you know, that it's like picking at that wound that's festering. Go somewhere else. Forget about it. Don't keep looking. And the Buddha described this in a good way, too. He said, he described it as being like a person with good eyes who does not want to see forms that come within their range of sight. So they either shut their eyes or look away. It's pretty simple. You know, it's not that we're going to set up the habit in life of every time we see something we don't like, shutting our eyes, looking away. That's not helpful. Remember that we're talking about working with something that we're really entangled in. We've tried to be with. Um, we've tried to replace unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts. We've tried to reflect on the faults of the of this disturbing thought, and you know we're still entrenched in it. We have to be honest in our practice. You know, it's not always that we'll be mindful and boom, we we can be with it. Sometimes the pull is really strong. Give yourself a break. Turn the mind somewhere else. Just forget about it. And in this way, what we're doing actually is turning the mind towards something that's neutral. Letting the mind come back into balance. And then when the balance is there, if that thought arises again, we can see if we can be with it. The next guideline that the Buddha gave is to still the thought formations. Stilling the thought formations. How do we do this? He, well, in the commentaries, um, it's described as, so there's a very disturbing thought. And then it's making an inquiry into what is the cause of this thought? So we have a really gross experience. Say, well, I'm going to use anger again. Anger is just you know, such an obvious one in many cases. So there, there's a strong thought of anger. So what's the cause of this thought? And then maybe we see that under the anger, there's fear. And so we start touching into the fear and looking to see what's the cause of this fear. And we look into the cause of the fear, we might see that there is a sense of I that needs to be protected. And this is becoming more subtle. You know, and so we keep looking into what's underneath, what's underneath, what's underneath. And, and doing so in a very um, you know, calm and focused way. What's, what's here? What's here? And, you know, we might eventually find that it's just a sense of looking at the space that the thought used to occupy. He likened it to a man who is walking, and he asks, Why am I walking fast? What if I walk more slowly? And then why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And why am I standing? What if I lie down? And each body position gets replaced with a more subtle body position. So we keep looking to what's, what's more subtle, what's more subtle, what's more subtle. 
And then the last technique that the Buddha gave was, he said, with teeth clenched, the tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. <laughs> Actually, I can say that this has been a subject of a lot of conversations when people first encounter it. You know, because how many of us have habits of repression? How many of us want to keep repressing? No, we're here because we don't want to repress. But here's the Buddha saying, with teeth clenched, the tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should be down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. Whoa, what's he saying? <laughs> so the commentaries talk about crushing down an unwholesome thought with a wholesome one. So this is an example from my own experience. The mind's in complete rage. And then the thought comes using the wholesome thought I care about my pain. And the rage is there. And being really steady and calm in saying, I care about my pain. 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 It's important to know that our motivation for doing this can be from wisdom. It's not that sense of wanting to get rid. It comes from that honesty in our mind that says, wow, look at this. How can I even touch this? It's so big. It's so huge. And my mindfulness doesn't feel that strong. How can I hold this in a wise way? It's not going to be the way of life that we always do that. But when it's unbearable, when the volatility is so strong, and we need to have balance, we need to have a balance in the mind that has the capacity to touch into that rage, it can help us to come back into balance. And I think with that, it's helpful to remember that at times, because what we face with these habituated mind states can come up so strongly with such fierceness, with such energy behind it, that there is going to be times when we are going to need a really strong determination. The Buddha, in his teachings, didn't mess around. Know that hatred in the mind is really something that needs to be looked into. We can't let it run rampant. It causes too much suffering. And sometimes, 
it's going to take a real strength of pulling up the energy from the deepest core of our being to work with. And that's okay. Sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes we see it really coming forth on its own when there's that energy of cutting through. You know, we've grappled with something, been pushed around by it, been exhausted by it. And then the mind just says, enough. It's enough. We don't need to go there. We don't need to do that. Sayadaw Uvekananda, he trained with Sayadaw Upandita. Uh, He's a German monk, uh, very good teacher. He was here one time teaching with Sayadaw Upandita. And he said something to me that really had an effect on my practice. And he kept saying it to me over and over in my interviews. He He kept saying, keep your mind pure. And what, what that helped me to see was how over years of practice I had become quite comfortable with these little negative thoughts, you know, not paying attention to them. They seemed little. They seemed of little consequence. But to just bring awareness to them. And this is what purifies You know, it's not that you have to do something to purify. Awareness itself purifies. Because just in the seeing, you know, in in really being with a thought, feeling it, knowing it, we begin to see what's skillful, what's unskillful. We begin to see the nature of the thought just through this awareness. But, you know, there's just little things in our experience that we, well, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. And thoughts in our practice, you know, can be very subtle. Sometimes they're gross, sometimes they're subtle. It doesn't matter. Just know them. So bringing thoughts into our practice by becoming aware of this process. Watching the mind that says, I shouldn't think. Knowing that it's important to have, to be able to fully understand the mind, to understand this process of thinking. It's just a movement of the mind an activity of the mind, something the mind does. Can we be aware of it? Can we know it in just the same way that we know any other experience? I'd like to close by uh, sharing another poem that came at the end of a retreat. 
And, you know, it certainly worked. It, it arose out of having seen this thought of I continually arising. It's called taking life lightly. Letting go of me and the story that I weave, who'd ever thought how fun it could be? For all of the places I've clutched and defended, for all of the tears I've cried from grief, sorrow, and loss on the suffering of me. My fingers grew tired, they had clutched so hard, and now dared to relax and to loosen their grip. Moments of peace, tranquility, and joy, a lightness of heart in this empty, cognizant, ever-changing space. And then there I'd be again, the one that wants and needs. I'd shrink and recoil at the very sight of me. Each time that I'd come, at some point I'd pass, letting go again of the suffering of me. Now I keep arising, but there's a giggle inside for jumping at opportunities of a birthplace for me. Each time that they pop, it's no more poor me, but laughter and humor as the mind becomes free. Letting go of this me, or just allowing life to be, without ever thinking that it belongs to me. So let's just sit for a moment. As we sit, thoughts arise, are known, disappear again. Sometimes there's thinking, sometimes there's stillness, the space between thoughts. not picking or choosing, just an awareness of this. Noticing when this thought becomes I, me, mine. Noticing the impact of the thought Noticing if there's an emotion. Thoughts, just another appearance in the mind.
So closing with the chanting of the sharing of blessings. 